I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations. Brain HQ is an online training system with 26 exercises that hone your attention, memory, brain speed, and more. They really work. How do I know? Because researchers at institutions from the Mayo Clinic to Yale have studied them and shown real, measurable benefits to the brain, like 10 years' improvement in memory. 10 years. Brain HQ adapts to your unique brain. As with physical exercise, brain exercise works best when it's at the right level to challenge you personally in the areas you need most. Brain HQ constantly adapts to your performance to make sure you're training at the optimum level for your brain. You can get a 10% discount on a Brain HQ subscription for finding out about it here. Just go to brainhq.com slash political wire. Again, that's brainhq.com slash political wire. And now to our conversation throughout American history, the balance of faith and politics has helped define who we are. And that definition hasn't always been totally clear. Examples of extreme positives and negatives have dominated our headlines. From the clergy's role in driving the civil rights movement to the abortion wars that have ended in murder in the name of faith to today's debates on same-sex marriage. The Constitution addresses the topic. Thomas Jefferson addressed it as well with his phrase noting the separation of church and state. Candidates today continue to address it from the far left to the Tea Party right. So what is the proper role of faith in politics and government? Where should the balance sit? Will we ever reach a place of common ground? Indeed, should we ever reach a place of common ground? Few have thought about these questions more than Mike McCurry. We all know him, of course, as President Clinton's White House press secretary. Today, in addition to serving as a partner at Public Strategies Washington, where he offers communication strategy for companies and nonprofits, Mike is a distinguished professor of public theology at the Wesley Theological Seminary. He serves, too, as co-chairman of the Commission on Political Debates. Mike, thanks for joining me. You know, after leaving public service, you're not supposed to just sit around waiting for the phone to ring. It feels to me like you really need to find some ways to stay busy. I think uh, God was calling me to move in a lot of different directions, and so that's what I've been doing, moving a lot of directions. Yeah, you're, you're covering a, a lot of ground. I didn't even mention the uh, numerous boards and advisory councils you sit on. Um, do, do you feel in some way, before before we kind of get into it, are you finding you're, you have more impact, different impact, um, more rewarding impact, less rewarding impact um, than you did when you were press secretary? You know, I feel like I feel like, now I have more impact on individual lives that make a difference and people who make a difference than I did when I was like working globally and addressing big issues at the White House. So it's actually been a very good for me, a very good, you know, reminder that you can make difference at the small grassroots level. Uh, even when you've moved beyond the, you know, global and you know the big time uh, influence that you have if you're working at the uh, a big stage like the White House. Did you know that ahead of time? Did you know that before, or or was that something that you learned? No, uh, no, very much a learning that came about. You know, as I kind of moved into my new life after the White House, I said, you know, I, uh, I'm teaching Sunday school, uh, working in my local church working in the, my denomination, you can make a, a much big, bigger and more profound difference and sometimes if you work at that level than just standing up there and answering questions from the national press day in, day out. 
Well, uh, that's a terrific lesson to learn. And I guess uh, no, no, sur- no surprise maybe with a little bit of tongue-in-cheek that there's really not that much to learn from answering questions from, from the press every day, but we, we won't take it out on, on them. Bef- before we jump into politics and religion and, and your thoughts and, and analysis and, and kind of guidance on that whole area, and I know you think um, such an incredible amount about it, we actually had news out of the White House press secretary's office last week, and I wanted to get your take. Jay Carney is stepping down. Josh Ernest will fill the role. Josh may not have asked you for advice, but that doesn't mean that I can't. What would you tell him? Well, the main thing is uh, use a little bit of humor. Recognize that most people don't follow what goes in and out of the White House day in and day out, so help them understand what's going on there. Um, it's a great transition. You know, Jay, Jay stayed there about as long as you can humanly stay in the, in the job of White House press secretary without going crazy, and Josh is a very able, capable uh, uh, next successor for him. But, you know, the, 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 the thing that people want to know is, like, what's really going on and what's happening and what's, you know, what's the president thinking? And as long as you keep your focus on that and what, you know, is the most important thing for the American people, which is what, what's, the Ameri- what's, what's the president really thinking, I think you can do very well on that job. And I think Josh Ernst will be a, a great White House press secretary. What about the particulars of the second term of a presidency and, and some of the challenges that can occur then? I mean, you know, the, the first term, of course, was no drama Obama, and term two has been slightly different, and, and the pressure is on in a number of ways, I mean, you know, whether, you know, Obamacare, obviously, you know, his signature uh, um, health care, you know, raised all sorts of, um, you know, all sorts of opposition. Maybe that's nothing new, but, you know, Benghazi questions, most recently this POW release. I mean, the, the pressure is on, and, and perhaps, obviously, no press secretary had to deal with pressure and intensity that you dealt with in uh, President Clinton's second term. A- any guidance, any thoughts on the press secretary, secretary role in this specific time that Ernest is taking the job, the, the second term with plenty of controversial issue, issues on the plate? Well, you, you you know at 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 this point at a, the midway in a second term, you really have to think about what is the you know importance of the presidency that you've served. What are you going to try to leave behind? You know what what's the most important thing that you've tried to get done? And I think President Obama clearly is moving in that direction. He's uh, announced, as we talked today, a very important uh, energy policy with respect to carbon fuels and carbon emissions. Yep. But I think I think the main the main thing is that you, you want to make sure that you put some record on the history book as you leave. And you know, with two plus years left, that's I think what Josh Ernest and most of the people who are in this job would be thinking about. Could you imagine doing it today, uh, I mean, with the channels of communication? I mean, is it is it harder, would you think? Part of me thinks, I mean, you know, the obvious would be, oh, it's so much harder, all these channels, you know, 24-7, you know, Twitter, you know, tweeting from, from, from wherever, and you can get it out there. Is, do, you, do you think it's harder today to be a press secretary and, and try to manage, or in some ways is it easier? Can you go direct to the people a little bit easier, or how, how would you analyze, you know, communications Boy, today? I, and I think the job is a lot harder. I've talked to my uh, successors who've had the job since I was there in the 1990s, and 
the you know the crush of information that goes day in and day out from the internet and what the internet requires of you really does put a premium on being on top of the facts and making sure you know what you're trying to say day in and day out. I think I think it's just become an extraordinarily hard job to do. And I you know, I, I give a lot of credit to my successors because I think they've had in some ways a much harder job to do than the one that I had in the nineteen nineties. Well, uh you 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 know, you you faced a number of challenges obviously, uh and uh you know some, I'm sure you know plenty of people found fault, but uh, plenty of us watched you and uh, thought you you know made it look easy as well. So um, I'm sure that uh, Ernest will look at you and and others as uh, as examples as as he goes forward. Uh, if if you don't mind, I'd love to turn now to the topic that you know that that I opened with and that I'd love to get your unique insights on. Um, the, the old saying, of course, is that you should never discuss religion or politics. Um, you've chosen in your life to discuss both. Which is harder? Well, look, we have a very well and good reason to separate the uh, foundation of church and state from each other. But on the other hand, we are a country that really is a deeply faithful country. And 80% plus of most Americans believe in God, believe that, you know, how you relate to God and whether you're in a relationship with God matters one way or another to you. And I think... You know, I think that informs our politics because if we were really following a lot of what we see in in multiple faith traditions about how we treat each other, I think we would be a lot less mean and negative and put a lot less poison into our political system than what we see going on today. So I I have a strong belief that uh, religious faith traditions can bring something important into the political dynamic that we have today and, you know, help us guide through some contentious issues that we have to deal with and maybe come out in places a little more positive. Well, you know, I, I wanted to ask you, I wanted to get some, you know, some of the background so that our listeners understand that, you know, you're, you know, you're a professor of public theology. You got your MA, in fact, um, at, at Wesley at the uh, Theological Seminary. Maybe talk for a moment about um, the work that you do um, with the United Methodist Church and how, how deep you are. But I want to just pick up quickly on one thing that you, you just said, um, and that's about the poison. So the counter, I mean, so, so I hear you, and, and we see all sorts of incredible things that can go on, um, in, you know, from and positive from faith and from religion and from the clergy. We, you know, I meant, you know, the least of it was civil rights movement. I mean, there's all sorts of other ones. But but many folks obviously feel as well that some of the poison that does get into the system um, comes from uh, fundamentalists, does come from a, a, you know, from folks who have a foot in religion. How do, how do you balance that? Do you agree with it? Do you, you know, is that, you know, hogwash? And, and, and how do you balance that or at least talk to people who, who have that kind of a view? Well, you're right. A lot of people do believe that, you know, religion has been mis used and misappropriated to advance a specific political agenda. And I, you know, I, I understand that in some degrees I'm sympathetic to that. But, you know, it means that all of us who have some faith tradition and some belief need to bring what we have into the public square. And we have to kind of believe that 
what we advance as a matter of faith can make a difference in how we treat one another. And I think, you know, just in the Christian faith tradition, there's a golden rule. If you treat your neighbor like yourself, you know, frankly, you wouldn't do a lot of what we currently see happening in the political realm. So I, I honestly believe that there's a way in which we can kind of bring some of the faith traditions and teachings that we have across a broad spectrum and bring it into the political space and make things a little more amicable and a little more loving and a little more respectful of what, you know, God who created all of us in God's image wants us to be as a people. So it's maybe a little altruistic and maybe a little naive, but, uh, you know, part of me thinks that that's we need more of that because currently the current system is, you know, I think very broken. And, you know, we need to do something to repair that brokenness. So talk to me about the how. And, and, and I agree with you. Uh, look, a, a little naivety may not, you know, be the worst thing for us. Um, but but uh, tr- translate that into the how. How do you, how do you, yeah, go ahead. How is pretty simple. You know, if you, are, if you get to know someone who has a very different perspective and a different uh, point of view, and really get to understand where they are and who they're coming from and, you know, you know, understand a little bit more about them. I think that creates a, a place for some relationship that we don't have currently. And one of the things broken in our system right now is that people don't know each other at some level other than you're a protagonist for this point of view and you're going to argue this and I'm going to argue that. Well, you know, what we're missing is the ability to kind of sit down and really say, okay, where are some areas in which we might agree on things? And I think that's that's where the fruitful boundaries of a new conversation can happen. You were in public office, you know, during those years, one of the most contentious issues was uh, abortion and, uh, you know, right to life and, and right to choose. Um, did you feel this way? You know, did you think about this in, in that topic and, and the people, and particularly the people? Uh, you know, early I think it was early in Clinton's term. There was uh, you know one one uh, doctor uh, who was uh, shot to death. There, there was one article I found in the Washington Post. Uh, um, the doctor who was shot to death outside his abortion clinic here today when a man who prayed for the physician's soul stepped forward from a group and. And open fire. I mean, you were dealing with this in, in, on some level in real time when you were in public office. Did you think about it in the same way then? Do you have a different view now because you've well, spent the time and the privilege of spending I don't, I don't time? Recall, I don't recall that specific. That, that was early. You may not have been in office at that time. I think that was that one was ninety three. But but just the issue around abortion in, yeah, in general. I, I, I think that. Uh, you know, I think Bill Clinton found a way to address this in a way that begins to build some kind of consensus, which is abortion should be rare. It should be, you know, under specific circumstances, but it should be safe and should be legal. And I think that's a very good formulation. I mean, he, I'd put more emphasis on the rare and the reasons why in which, you know, that is an issue that is uniquely divisive for for many, many people. And, of course, in the Christian belief there are many people who you know wonder what god's reason is for us to think that conception and life begins at some point and not at another point but you know 
you set all that aside, you said at the same time, anytime there's an abortion, it probably is an indicator that something is not going right. And so we want to be in ministry to people who have got to face that dilemma. And I, and I think that we found a pretty good formula for that, which is we want to reduce the number of times in which that's an issue, but we want to keep it legal and we want to keep it, most importantly, safe for the mother who has to face that circumstance. I never met President Clinton, um, but he's come across, I mean, he talks about faith openly. You know, he comes across that way. Did, did he talk about it in the White House? Did you ever have discussions on faith and, and the role of faith in politics with him? Well, not a lot. And I think that's one of, the, one of the dilemmas of being a Democrat is that you, somehow or other we hide our belief under a bushel sometimes, and we don't really profess our faith and talk about what that means to us. And that's one of the things I'm trying to get people who maybe are more of the, you know, left of center side, the progressive side, to be more comfortable talking about it because we, we've we let the debate be more dominated by people who are more outwardly professing on the uh, religious right. But, you know, yes, we did talk about that from time to time. And you know, Bill Clinton is, for all of his faults and all of his wonderful things, you know, remember, we are all sinners, and he he is a sinner, as he freely has confessed many times. Um, but he does, he is someone who struggles with what are we called to be as part of a larger body in the community of believers. And I think that that is something that I think, has served him well in his ex-presidency and, you know, frankly, is a place where he can build positive relationships with a lot of other people in the world, including some of his Republican predecessors, who I think have been, you know, have become, you know, very supportive of some of the things that he's tried to do. Mike, I want to ask you about your own um, personal work. I, I've read where you were very active in the administration of the United Methodist Church. I want to ask you about uh, your role at uh, Wesley Theological Seminary um, and, and some other questions as well. I also want to share a couple of words about our terrific sponsor, Harry's, and the great shaving experience you can get from them. Now, Harry's is less than one year old as a company, and already it's disrupting the shaving industry. They offer a better shaving experience at better value than the giants like Schick and Gillette. Now, Harry's was sparked by the personal experience of Andy, one of their founders, and it's emblematic of the experience that many guys have. Let me tell you what Andy went through. You tell me if this sounds familiar. So Andy went to a drugstore, waited about 10 minutes for someone to unlock the case where the razors were being held, and he bought a four-pack of blades and some shaving cream. He says it wasn't the best purchase experience, to say the least, but when he walked out, looked into his bag, and he had a receipt for over $25 with products and brands that didn't really speak to him as a customer. He just felt that there had to be a better way, and there is, and that better way is called Harry's. Here's what they do. They are focused on providing guys a great shaving experience for a fraction of the price of their competitors, half the price of other razor blades. They have a clean product design. They approach it less but better. High-quality blades engineered in their own factory in Germany for sharpness and strength. Get this, they care so much about the quality of the shave that that they just purchased the 93-year-old German factory that makes them. They have, of course, as well, the convenience and ease of ordering online. So $15 gets you a set that includes a handle, three blades, and shaving cream shipped right to your door. 
Harry's even offers a custom engraving option to engrave your initials on the razor. If this sounds good to you, blades at half the price, convenience of having it shipped right to your door, no waiting for that cabinet of razor blades to get unlocked, go to harrys.com and use the promo code POLITICALWIRE. That's harrys, H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com, promo code POLITICALWIRE to save $5 off your first purchase. Mike, so that I understand and our listeners understand how deeply this runs in you, I, I read where you are active within the administration of the United Methodist Church, um, serving as a lay delegate to the Church General Conference. Uh, you're on various denominational boards. You're also a distinguished professor uh, of public theology at Wesley Theological Seminary, um, and and you're you're running, I saw you're in, interim co-director of uh, one of the areas at the seminary, um, what did what did all of that mean? Tell me, tell me, you know, how does that directly uh, um, impact you? Well, you know, I'm still discerning that myself. But <laughs> here's the general proposition: I think the church and the broader church and the church universal are places where people with very different points of view come together, and they come together usually for worship, for purposes of professing a faith tradition, and some God that they they believe in. I mean, there's differences across, obviously, the Christian, Muslim, Jewish faith traditions that, you know, are dominant here in the United States. But they all come together because they believe in something that is important about the role that God plays in their lives. And I think the more that we focus on that and the more that we begin to apply that, to the kinds of conversations we have on the temporal, secular issues that divide us here in Washington and elsewhere, the more we could create an environment in which people sort of say, look, I may not agree with you, but I am not going to demonize you. I'm not going to say negative things about you. I'm not going to question your morals or your, your motives. And I think we need more of that in politics right now. I think we, more need, we need more people sitting down and kind of deciding how do you address the larger issues that are out there that make a difference. And then I think that's something that, uh, you know, that's what I'm clearly going to try to be building a program at Wesley Seminary, which is a fine Methodist seminary right next to American University here in Washington, D.C. I'll be doing more of that. But I, I, I think the larger proposition is we've got to bring people together to come to discuss these issues and really figure out where we can find some common ground. I can tell you a, a big concern of mine, and I think you hinted earlier, I believe that you're maybe concerned about this as well. Obviously, if you're not, you'll, you'll say so. Um, and, and that's the drop um, in trust that Americans have in government. Um, there's a recent millennials poll from Harvard. There have been many other polls that have shown uh, similar, you know, drops in in trust. And you know, we we know from last October, uh, you know, it takes very little um, in a government shutdown for for trust to fall even more. Um, first, on the government side, um, how much do you worry about the drop in trust if you do? And and secondly, kind of more to what you study and think about, is faith potentially a way to bring trust back in government? Well, two good questions, and the first is yes. One anecdote, we had uh, Hillary Clinton, Mrs. Clinton, who's a good good friend of mine, came to our office one time a couple of years ago for a little gathering that we had, and I asked her, I said, you know, 
Mr. Quinn, what, what, why is the Senate so dysfunctional? Why, why doesn't it work today? And her answer was, well, because we don't know each other. You know, we don't sit down and get to develop relationships across the aisle. By the way, this is something that she has personally worked on very hard, I think, to create relationships where people begin to know each other and can trust each other because, you know, anytime you want to advance something on the public agenda, it's going to require I give up a little bit of what I maybe thought was the pure way of doing what we wanted to do in order to kind of meet you coming from the opposite side and coming across. And uh, so finding that kind of level of compromise is important. Now, to the second part of the question, the church, I think, can play a role in this. I think that, you know, we've got people who are in most of our pews on both sides of the political aisle, and we can model and develop ways in which we have those kinds of holy conversations in which people really are free to and feel safe to give up a little bit of what maybe is their orthodoxy and find a place where there's some common ground. So, I, you know, that, that's kind of connecting what I'm doing now to the world that I lived in when I worked in politics. And on both of those, as you were discussing them, particularly the first one and, and your, you know, Hillary Clinton talking about, you know, getting, finding common ground and reaching across, but something about all of that made me, you know, made me start to think as well about um, one of the issues of our day right now, same-sex marriage. And, and you said something about, you know, balancing the individual rights and, and the views of others in, in society. Um, have you dealt with that as an issue, same-sex marriage and, and gay rights? And, you know, they, they are growing. It's, it's continuing on state ballots, but not everywhere. Um, how, does, how do you think about that issue um, vis-a-vis faith and politics? Well, interestingly, I've, I've dealt with that issue a long time. And back when I was a high school student, I grew up in a uh, congregational church in the United Church of Christ uh, in Northern California, and in 1970, so many, many years ago, when I was 16, I was asked to vote on whether or not we would ordain an openly gay person to become a, a clergy person in that church. And we agreed to do that. And, you know, that, that denomination has been in the forward thinking, but I'm, I'm more active in the Methodist church now, which has a kind of a different take on all that. But all of these issues, I think, are, you know, particularly the questions of human sexuality, are hard to resolve. And there are people who look at Scripture and they come at it completely different points of view on this. And so on these issues, it may be a time in which we need to say, look, we need to just park what we believe and let the Holy Spirit guide us towards where we might want to go. Now, we've had, you know, there's a new pope in the Catholic Church, which is not my tradition, but, uh, you know, uh, on questions of economic and moral and social justice have been more profound than, you know, most of the denominations. And Pope Francis has sort of said, look, let's, you know, he has guided us and said, this is not the issue that I define where we are spiritually on many important questions. Let's find other areas where we can work together. 
and that's you know frankly where I I come out. I, I think you know, we can set aside issues that are divisive like abortion, death penalty. Um, I mean, you can name them. They are questions about the fundamental way in which we look at how God creates life, and then say we're going to disagree on some of those things, but we can also agree that how we nurture life and how we protect people against poverty and injustice and war and all the other you know things that we face in our temporal life, that we can come together and work together. So I think we've, we've you know, I've found some really, really interesting ways in which we can kind of bridge some of the differences that exist. He really is uh, changing the paradigm. It feels to me, Pope Francis. Do you do you agree with that? I, I mean, in- I yes, I, I I agree with that. I, I think I agree with it because he's liberated Catholics to say we don't have to be in constant opposition to our own church around some issues that are very very difficult for us, like abortion, like homosexuality, like other issues, and and you know, Pope Francis seems to be calling us that there's a higher order of imperative that comes from the scriptures and comes from what Jesus has admonished us to think about that puts us in a different frame. And so maybe the old debates of the past are less important than the debates that we need to have going forward. And I I give him a lot of credit for that. Mike, you're also co-chairman of the Commission on Presidential Debates. Would you encourage a question about faith and politics in the uh, 2016 presidential and vice presidential debates? Would 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 you expect it? Well, I would encourage it and would like it, but one of the great things about this commission is that we leave up to the content of the debate uh, the prerogatives of the people we pick as the moderators. And that's a very important principle for us because these are have to be... The content of the debate has to be settled by the journalists who are the moderators, not, you know, people who are subject to, you know, the back and forth of public opinion and whatever the whim of the moment is. And so, but I, you know, that said, I think, I, I do think that these questions of what is your faith, how does it apply to what you would do if you were in office, I think these are enormously important questions, and I, I, I certainly do hope our presidential candidates in 2016 address those kinds of questions. And if one of the moderators were to simply ask your guidance, um, what, what question might you suggest they uh, think about asking? Well, <laughs> good question. Off the top of my head, it would be, how do you define a common good, and how do you bring the American people to come together to embrace and advance a common good. And, that you know, maybe that's a, a Democrat speaking because we believe that uh, there are ways in which government can assist and be a tool to bring about that common good. But I think, I think it's a little bit more than how do you pursue your own individual liberty and your own role in the market. I think it's a question about how do you see yourself in a community of people who have needs and what will you bring to the table as you address those needs. So I guess that's the, uh, broadly defined. That's, that's what I'd like to hear the candidates address.
Well, and that's very consistent with uh, what what you've been discussing, and and what I'm gathering is your your general view of the role that faith and and politics can play. Um, it, just just to to close out, and this is a highly political question. Um, so you, you mentioned uh, a couple of moments ago your your good friend, uh, you know, sec, former Secretary of State Secretary Clinton. Um, I just wanted to give you the chance because I don't want you to be mad at me afterward. You know, the chance to to break some news. Um, on whether she's running or not. I'm sure she's confided in you. Um, uh, would you be willing to spill the beans, please? Well, I would, I would break big news if I said I knew the answer to that question, <laughs> but I don't. Okay. I, but I think, I, think, I think more importantly, I think she's struggling with it. And I think, you know, she's, uh, she'll be, I guess, what, 65, 66, as she would begin a candidacy and closing in on age 70 if she got elected. And... You know, at that age and when you start thinking about the contributions you can make and you think about the fact that I'm also going to be soon to be a grandmother, which I think is a real blessing from God in her life, and then you think about all the good things that I'm doing with my husband and my wife and, and my daughter in the, uh, you know, the foundation that I'm in right now, you begin to think about, well, what what's the best way for me to spend my time? And is it to run for president, which would be the yield from that after a difficult, very contentious struggle, and maybe a little bitter struggle might be that I get to be the first female president of the United States. Okay, that's a you know something historically to uh, acknowledge. But on the other hand, against that is the ability to continue to do all the stuff that you're doing currently. And I think, you know, I think there's a reasonable proposition she may decide, look, all the stuff I'm doing now is more rewarding to me than running for president and ending up back in Washington in a very polarized environment. But, you know, I'd have to say to answer your question, I have absolutely no idea how the thinking on that is going in the Clinton family. Okay, well, I'm I'm very surprised. I thought for sure that uh, not only would you know, but that you would, uh, you know, be looking to betray all confidences and and spill the <laughs> beans. Well, you know, maybe maybe next time. Mike McCurry uh, was for is former uh, White House press secretary. Today, in addition to serving as partner at Public Strategies Washington, uh, he's a distinguished professor of public theology at the Wesley Theological Seminary. He thinks and talks and and uh, I guess to some extent writes as well and teaches um, about this intersection of faith and politics, um, all important, not only in the history of our country, um, but today. Mike, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. I enjoyed it. I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations.